If you're not at Psalm 113, turn there. This morning's message. Generally, I don't do titles. Not on purpose, just I don't seem to be a title person. But if you had a title this morning, it's just an encouragement to womanhood, a title that captures just what I want to do this morning. God has a design for womanhood, and the Word of God everywhere encourages that. So let's just ask the Lord again to uh, be with His Word to our minds and hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, again, we come before your holy scriptures here. This is how you speak to us. Lord, you speak to our spirits. You give guidance in many ways, but the primary and the truly only authoritative guidance, the one that we can always depend on, the one that we can always be certain of, is your holy word. And Lord, by this word you drew us to yourself, by this word you... <coughs> instruct us by this word you encourage us by this word you give us life Lord Jesus you said you had the words of life your words are spirit and life they're more than just words on a page Lord just pray this morning as we uh, just consider this whole matter of something that's so clear in your word and so near and dear to your heart manhood and womanhood well that's what defines us um Surely, uh, as we read this psalm, we'll recognize how much you're engaged in it. Lord, just pray you'd write these things in our heart, particularly in a day when uh, your design is being challenged with a full court press. It seems like the the wicked are succeeding on every side through mass media and other ways to undermine your very design of manhood and womanhood. And Lord, this morning, encourage us in it. Strengthen us in it. Clarify to us what the issues are about so as Christians we can live unto you and speak for you in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 113. Nine verses in this psalm, and this psalm begins and ends with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This praise and thanksgiving in this psalm is a hallmark of all the psalms around it. It's kind of in an ocean or a sea of psalms that are really close to it, that are sort of bouncing around in the water and the waves with it, and all of them are praising the Lord. Psalm 111 starts out, praise ye the Lord, and ends with his praise endures forever. Psalm 112 starts out with, praise ye the Lord, blessed is the man that fears the Lord. Psalm 114 talks about Israel going out of Egypt and praise for that. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because... Psalm 117, O praise the Lord, all ye nations. Psalm 118, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. So here are a bunch of sister psalms, as it were, that their focus is on the praise of God. As Matthew Henry put it, God uses these psalms to put his words in our mouth to praise him for it. Here's the words, here's the encouragement to praising the Lord. This is a great psalm for that. And throughout this psalm, there's a call 
to a recognition of God. God's name is referred to. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Just three times here, the name of the Lord. And God's name includes every aspect of his being, his character, and his attributes. So when you think of the name of the Lord, you think of what about God? Everything. Okay. Now it's left to us to, in this psalm to itemize those things, except for a few things that he'll point out. But generally, if you want to talk about God's being, his infiniteness, his eternity, those kinds of things, his character, he is righteous, he is faithful, he is true, he is light, he is love, his attributes, his goodness, his kindness. All the aspects of God, his power, you could, I mean, you could, we're sort of to parse those things out for ourselves when we're praising the Lord. This is just sort of a, a general exhortation. Praise the name of the Lord. Everything you can think about God, praise him. Acknowledge him, recognize him, ascribe unto him the glory due to his name. And this generalization is not made to be vague. Rather, it's made to be comprehensive. Praise the name of the Lord. Whatever that encompasses, whatever you encounter, whatever you're thinking of, whatever aspect of his being, character, and his works. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, he's to be recognized and praised by his servants. And in the Old Testament, that would be sort of a synonym that you could plug other things into and say the same thing, his saints, his people. In the New Testament, we would clarify that definition by believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are his saints as believers, whether Jew or Gentile, no matter who we are. We are his saints. We are his people. We are the people of God. And so he's to be recognized and praised by his servants And that is those who are the closest to him. While the Psalms often say, praise him all ye nations, just this sort of big swath of the entire globe and all of human history, here this praise is narrowed down to those who are his servants, those who are closest to him, those who know him best, and those who are beloved by him. That's who we are as believers. We know God, we're known of God, we're beloved of God, we're close to God, we're in Christ. Can you get any closer to God than in Christ? I mean, it just doesn't get any closer than that. And where are we praising the Lord? The closer you are to God, the more you should be praising him. The more you're just gonna be in awe. Gwen and I uh, yesterday watched a... uh, a whale documentary, whatever you call it. It was really cool. You're just there the whole time just jaw-dropping at just the awesomeness of these creatures. I mean, you couldn't help it. It's you know, one of the newer ones, so it's got some of the latest and greatest footage of orcas, and there'll be others in the next episode, but you're just sitting there, you're just, you're just in wonder the whole time at these cool creatures that God made. And it was absent, strangely, of all the, well, they're 50 million years old. There was just none of that. I was surprised. And it was a blessing. Didn't have to filter all that out and go, oh no, creation, not 50 million years of evolution. Just, just an amazing show. And just looking at these orcas every time, you're just, you're just going, wow. Well, that's what it is with the name of God. 
as you consider God, you consider who he is, and you consider all that he's done, all that he's accomplished, his being, his attributes, his character, his works, you should just be going, wow. And praising the name of the Lord. Wow as his servants. Wow as his people. Wow as his saints. Wow as beloved of God. Now there are two qualities that this psalm singles out about God that we should consider in a more specific way. And the first of all, first thing is God's incomparable greatness. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? And so when the psalmist is going to point something out in this psalm, he points out just the majesty and exaltedness and the greatness of God. That's what should be in our minds and hearts. And he's doing that because he's going to give a contrast. He could have pointed many things out, but he's doing this because of the contrast he makes in the last part of this psalm. I just always think of the song we sing here. I'm sure it's sung everywhere. There's no one like Jehovah. There's no one like Jehovah. There's no one like Jehovah. You just keep saying that and you go, yeah, it's because there's no one like Jehovah. It's, it's just true. The Lord is high above all nations. Whether we consider things globally, God is above the nations, he's high above the nations, or whether we consider things in the biggest spectrum that we know of as created beings, the universe, the heavens. He's high above the nations, the globe, his glory above the heavens. No matter how far you go, no matter how big you make your, I don't know, framework of description, God is higher than that. He is high above them. It is clear from this psalm and from many others, there's nothing beyond God and certainly no one who could ever compare to him. Nothing, no one beyond God because of his greatness. But then there's another quality singled out that sort of makes up the last part of the psalm and the reason he's putting, talking about the greatness of God is because he wants to show the incredible contrast. Here is God who is high, higher than anybody, above all, beyond all. And yet he has a deep regard and a deep involvement with his creation. Though he is high and above and beyond all, he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and are in earth. God beholds and he loves and esteems his own works. As the world and the sort of the philosophical history of the world was moving from the Middle Ages and sort of what we might call the more modern age into the Enlightenment era, the first thing they did was start to distance God from his creation. So no, it's no longer a personal God of theism, but it's now this distant God of deism. Sure, there's a God out there. You know, well, we're going to recognize and acknowledge there's a God, but he's really not engaged in his world here. And that's just, they must not have read Psalm 113. 
or they must not have cared about it, which is more likely. The God who made everything did not make it and walk away and say, good luck, have a great existence. The God who made all things humbles himself from his greatness and majesty. And he comes and engages in the very heaven and earth that he made. Notice, he has to humble himself to engage the heavens first. And then it's like, okay, now we're in this quadrant called the heavens, of which there's billions of stars and billions of galaxies and billions of light years, and then we're going to move from this big quadrant to this little pinpoint, the earth. God beholds and he loves and he esteems his own works. He loves what he has made. He loves his own designs of his own works. He loves his own purposes of his own works. We finally finished a uh, project yesterday. Had to work eight hours yesterday dealing with things. It was a 70-hour work week, but man, at the end of it, I just sat back and went, okay, push the last button, fix the last problem, got off the phone and said, see you next week. Our project was, was now up and running, sort of been up and running, but now it's fixed and running the way it was supposed to be, the way it was designed. And just the sense of satisfaction. I designed a great database, I have to tell you that. <clears throat> the guys designed great UIs to go on top of that database. But it's always the database in the end that counts. Um, <clears throat> Michael's not here, so I can say that. Where is he here? I don't have my glasses on. But just the satisfaction that what I designed works. Because I'm telling you, when you're designing databases, they, most of the time they don't always work. And it's like, okay, man, I put my heart and soul in this thing. And I'm going to tell you, my database is elegant. I don't write creepy, crummy databases. I spend my life fixing people's creepy, crummy databases and turning them into elegant works of art. I do. All the commas are in place. All the words are just precise. They say exactly what they mean, and they mean exactly what they say. No corners have been cut. It's like, man, this database is working the way I want it. And I sit back and I just go, man, this is really a cool database. Well, that's how God feels about his universe, about his creation, about every aspect of it about his orcas. I mean, just watching those orcas that, you know, we are for the first time have the technology actually see them, have underwater shows. God has been watching them for how many thousands of years just enjoying what he created. And these orcas are amazing creatures. And that's God. I mean, he just, he just beholds the things that are in the heaven and the earth. He esteems his own works and his own designs and his own purposes. He's not distant or aloof. He's fully engaged with the world he has made. That's what the psalmist wants us to see. He's high, but he's engaged. As the theologians want to say, he's transcendent, but he's imminent. And yet, what does he do? He especially considers the human beings who are made in his image. 
He is especially concerned more than anything else for people. And he's considered for our plight, the plight of everybody. He raises up the poor and the needy. You see, most of the world cozies up to who? There's a proverb that says, A rich man has many friends, but a poor man, his friends run from him. You see, wealth and power brings friends, attention, because they think they're going to get something. As soon as one of those orcas make a kill, man, every bird in the whole place comes and is hovering to try to get a piece of it. But that's not who God is. God doesn't go and take concern for the man or the woman who are important to this world, who are self-sufficient in this world. God focuses on, in his desires toward those who are God-sufficient, not self-sufficient. Those who understand their own frailty as human beings and their own dependency on the God who made them for life and breath and for all things, those are the people God cares about. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon them that fear him, upon those who trust in his mercy. Not the self-sufficient, the God-sufficient. And he raises up the poor from the dust, from their plight, from their condition. And he lifts up the needy from the ash heap. God clearly wants his servants, his people, to prosper and succeed in the everyday affairs of life. Now, of course, false prophets will take a statement like this, take it all out of its context. Because there's a context in which it is said that he raises people up to. There's a context in which he says that he prospers people and he lifts them up. He clearly wants his servants to prosper. But here's how he makes us to prosper. And remember that the setting of this psalm is around the 10th century B.C. or 8th century B.C., a whole long time ago. And the context is what? Metropolitan New York City with millionaires? Or is the context a bunch of villages dotting the countryside of Palestine? We have to remember the context. And so when it says he raises men to make them sit with princes, he's not talking about, you know, the king and the prince in Jerusalem. He's just talking about the elders of the city in which he lives. I'm always going to be glad that I went to Romania in the year 2000, again, a few years later, because I saw firsthand how to interpret the Bible as you drive through the rural areas of Romania and these small little 1,000 people villages everywhere, each of them had to be self-sufficient as a village. If they made bad decisions, people died that winter. If people just wanted to get lazy, again, people died that winter. Because no one was there to help them. No one was there to come to their rescue should they not have enough to eat come January and February. And so the leaders of each little village had to be making very clear, wise, purposeful decisions because a thousand people depended on them. And that's the picture here. 
that a man is lifted up out of the ash heap to become part of making the community happen and happen well in the context of a village. Not the UN. And these men, their wise decisions are going to be for the safety of the village in a time when anybody could come out of anywhere and just, you know, a pile of thugs could come and destroy your village and do all, wreak all kinds of havoc and grief and unmentionable things. So the safety of the village would be at stake. The provision of the village would be at stake. The economics, if you will. The stability of the village would be at stake. And so God says he bows down the heaven to make men do what? Take their place in making this bigger community happen. Making better farm tools. Making more efficient methods of farming. Engineering those things. To sit with the princes, the leaders, to take part in making the village happen. But what about the women? Women are to do something that is closer to home. Women are to do something that is closer to God's heart. Women are to do something that's closer to everybody and more vital to everybody. They're to make the family happen. Women are the ones that give birth to children. I mean, men can't do that. That is an amazing privilege and opportunity. Women, as you read Proverbs 31, the ideal woman, it's idealized. Sounds really great if you frame it and put it on a wall, but when you try to work it out every day, it's the doldrums of every day, the the tyranny of the mundane to make the ideal real. But there is the woman making provision for her children. The men may be perhaps establishing a bigger framework in which women can function. I mean, you're not going to have any food unless the men are out farming. But after the men have out and farmed, they're dead beat, they're done. And it's the women who take that food and make it happen in the family. The watchfulness for everybody, their husbands, their children, their family as a whole, the nurturing that is done. God makes the barren woman to abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. And again, that's the ideal. The real doesn't always live up to what we might think the ideal is, but that's just the outworking of life. Now these things, to make them sit with princes, to make the barren woman abide in the house, these are generalized. Just like God's name is generalized. You praise the name of the Lord, start plugging in all the details. That's on you to plug in the details, the psalmist is saying. And so it is with these two things where men and women, according to their God-given roles, are interacting in everyday life and God is blessing them in it. And so the point of this psalm is clear. There's nothing too great for God. And there's no one too insignificant for his love and concern. There is nothing greater than God. And God takes concern for everybody.
Now, I'm sort of titling this psalm a celebration of womanhood and motherhood. Should I do a Father's Day message, I would call it a recognition of manhood and fatherhood. But this is Mother's Day. So that's the title of my psalm, a celebration of womanhood and manhood. And you see from this that God loves womanhood and God loves manhood. I mean, that might say, well, gosh, that might be simple, but in a day in which we live, is this something just, that's just simple? Or is this something astounding and amazing and absolutely necessary to always maintain that God loves womanhood and God loves motherhood and God blesses womanhood and God blesses motherhood. God views and regards and manages the world through this lens. This is the God who made everything. He's high above heavens and earth and these are the two things the psalmist says that God is most concerned about in the world today, yesterday, and forever. In an age when motherhood is being dismantled and womanhood is being rearranged and distorted beyond any kind of recognition. The rebellion against God manifested in those things is immeasurable. It is Satan just deceiving the human race into denying and distorting that which is most significant to their identity. In this case, womanhood and motherhood. And so my whole point in doing this is a, kind of like, let's have a tune-up here, folks. When you take your car in to get a tune-up, are you taking your car in because, you know, it broke? Do you have your car towed in for a tune-up? No, you have your car towed in for an overhaul, for a transmission repair. You drive your car and you make an appointment for a tune-up and a tune-up is just this. Well, I've been driving my car (coughs) and, you know, I've been driving it for a year now and it's, you know, running okay, but it's just a little rough. So you take your car in and you get the tune-up. The 1995 tune-up, you hope, but probably more than that. Used to be you could tune a car up yourself. Good luck on that now. I remember when I had my Volkswagen, I'd tune my car up. Get that, this thing's just a little bit, a few degrees past top dead center and all that kind of stuff. You could look it up and, and do it yourself. Can't do that now. But the point is, as you're driving your car, I mean, things get a little loose, get a little off kilter, get a little, you know, out of their proper configuration and structures and things. And a tune-up is to, you bring it in, they get your car back, and now it runs, ah, You don't notice it a lot, but you can tell if you've been driving. It runs just smoother. It runs nicer. Okay, and that's what this is for. This is a tune-up. I don't think anybody here is uh, being carried away by the world's versions of things. But just an encouragement, a tune-up. So just some reminders. We know these things. We've heard these things, most of us. But let's just be reminded. Let's be put in remembrance. As Peter would say, let us... Genesis 1, 26 and 20, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, including the orcas. God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created he him. 
Male and female, he created he, them. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 should be a bedrock. It should be a place you always go. It should be a foundation of all your thinking. It is the foundation of our identity. Having brought an amazing world into being, God focuses on the pinnacle of the reason for which he made the world to begin with. This whole entire universe exists for this verse, these two verses here. This is why the universe is here. We're not a sideshow. We're not sort of, you know, oh, well, just part of this big picture. We are the center and core and reason to be, raison d'etre, for this reality. Our image bearingness <coughs> is the core of our being and the core of our existence. And God created a whole entire universe as a place, a home for his children, that is us. And he has big plans, okay? But right now, we, his plan is to fix the things that are broken. And once that's done, the plans are going to be realized in ways that are incomprehensible. But our image bearingness, this is the core of who we are. All of us as human beings, every last human being in the world, no matter who they are, no matter how small or how great, all those places you've read in the Bible, the rich and the poor and the small and the great and the, you know, all those descriptions that are trying to be comprehensive of everybody and bring everybody to a common place. And the common place here is that we share this common definition and dignity and significance. This is what defines every human being. And we're having to deal with critical race theory and identical identity politics and the absurdity of them. This is where you always take people. Don't debate the circular philosophy. Get people out of the philosophical circle of human philosophy and, and human definition and get to God's definition. Just go right there. We're all in the image of God. Whatever the races that are in the world, whatever the differences in nationality, whatever the differences are in the gene pool, it's a diversity created by God and desired by God and purposed by God and rejoiced in by God. Diversity is awesome if God is the foundation. But if humanism is the foundation, then all their identity and diversity is just an absurdity and degradation and ultimately bondage. We must always start here in our assessment and understanding of anything and everything. God has made the world and God has made us in his image. And every human being shares a common purpose, a common mission. God says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and the earth and every creeping thing that creeps. This is a mission. This is what the human race is supposed to be doing. It's original purpose. God, Adam, in the image of God, as the head of a people of God, ruling over the creation of God, the kingdom of God. That's the original purpose. Everyone has a place there. That's what Psalm 113 is about. God humbles himself to every man, to every woman, and says, you have a place in this mission You have a contribution. You have meaning. You have significance. Don't worry about everybody else's place. Be glad for your own. Be the best you that you can be to serve God in the place he's established for you in this 
divine order. We are to do this with all the diversity of race and culture. Even if sin hadn't been around, there'd still be Mexican food and there'd still be Thai food, okay? There'd still be the diversity of culture because the human race still had to spread out just like it has. It still had to discover everything from scratch. I mean, they started with what? A garden, being naked, and God putting stuff in the ground. And God says, go out now and build a world order. But do it in my name and do it in my righteousness and do it according to my design and my vision and my purpose. We are to do this with a fully inclusive concept of gender, race, and culture. The woke purposes, the woke stuff has hijacked a bunch of fancy and highfalutin terminology that does not belong to them. It belongs to God. God's the author of diversity. God's the author of gender. God's the author of race. God rejoices in the diversity of culture. These are words that belong to God, not humanists, not godless humanists. We are to establish a world order that recognizes that God has created us as male and female. Male and female, he created them. This last little phrase must always be recognized and must always be seen as the bracket around the whole statement. This image bearingness, this likeness, this rule over everything God has made, it is bracketed by maleness and femaleness which God has established. We share a common humanity, but we express that humanity as either male or female. It's stamped into our genetic material. And if someone says, well, there's outliers, I'm like, well, there's outliers because of sin. And outliers don't define the middle of the bell curve. They are outliers. They are edge cases. They don't define the generality of things. And we are to embrace this as defining God's world, that maleness and femaleness is part of God's world, and we are to appreciate maleness and femaleness. We are to acknowledge maleness and femaleness in everything that we are and do. Men must appreciate women for their womanhood. Women must appreciate men for their manhood. The idea that we're going to just start defining women in this way and men in this way in some negative perspective. You don't get to define manhood away by calling it toxic maleness. You just don't get to do that. Sin is toxic, not maleness. Because there's just as many toxic females as there are toxic males, if you want to be in that world of description. Genesis 2, 21 and 22, we, we see where God details the making of men and women, this maleness and femaleness, when we actually see how God makes the human race, the maleness and femaleness aspects of it are at the center. In Genesis 2, 7, Adam is made from the ground, the dust of the ground directly, and God breathes into his nostrils life, a direct creation of God. But then the whole rest of the chapter is taken up with creating Eve. 
The why of creating Eve, the how of creating Eve, and the outcome of creating Eve. The order of creation is significant. We read in Titus 2.13 that all the reasoning for what is said there is because man was first formed, then Eve. And there are other places that refer that. But the point is, is that God does this. Maleness and femaleness comes into clear organic, into being in a clear organic relationship. The Lord God fashioned into a woman which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God does not create man over here from the dust of the ground and woman over here from the dust of the ground and say, okay, now here are your assignments and here are your roles. He could have done that. But he didn't. He creates Eve in the closest organic relationship to Adam that there could possibly be. We need to understand that. And Adam understands this. He recognizes this. He acknowledges this as he sees the woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I mean, his whole understanding of womanhood is in how she was made and for what purpose she was made. Marriage is not a contract. It's not a human arrangement. It's one flesh, and that's what's being described here. This reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage is clearly a reality, a, a, a relationship that involves only one man and only one woman. There is no other definition anywhere in the Bible. Every other attempt to sort of change this of one man and one woman is called a distortion at some level or another. Now, God permits some things, and then some things are not permitted at all. But everything apart from one man and one woman is not seen as good. And it certainly is not seen as according to God's design. It's within this unit of one man and one woman that children come into the world and are nurtured into adulthood. And this is the context and the point of reference for Psalm 113, isn't it? Manhood and womanhood in Psalm 113 are clearly designed and designated. And here is where it begins at the very creation of Adam and Eve. And any attempt to diminish this manhood-womanhood dichotomy is invalid and against God's design. Now what are the challenges to womanhood and motherhood? The first challenge is sin. Adam and Eve has sinned, and we read in Genesis 3.16 that to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. So the first punishment for sin that the female human race will experience is a compounded difficulty in that which was part of her core privilege. It is a privilege to bring forth children. It's conception and birth is a privilege and unique to only one half of the human race. Again, everybody wants to distort it today. 
But God said it's going to be troublesome now. There's going to be things about it that were never originally intended, that were never supposed to be there. But because of sin, this is going to be. In challenges to womanhood and motherhood, sin also brings in a distortion of male and female roles. Your desire will be for your husband. And now this is not a good desire. I was reading a, some material in preparation for this and there was a woman who, I got her book, but she just had some oddities and one of them she thought was this desire was a good thing. You're gonna have this wonderful desire for your husband. You're gonna love him and blah, blah, blah. Sin's not gonna affect you in that way at all, but he's gonna be mean to you. Like, no, no, that's, that's not what this desire is. The same phrase, your des- its desire will be for you is in the chapter four, the next chapter, and it's about sin plaguing Cain. This is a negative desire. And so the challenge to womanhood and motherhood, first of all, is sin, our sin, my sin, your sin. Male and female roles will be plagued by sinful desires and expressions. Your desire will be to your husband. And the way the female design in the design of woman, the sinful expression usually comes to the fore in terms of manipulation and control of husbands and families. When you're young, you know, you're a teenager, you become a young adult, you're just going to get married, you're kind of oblivious to how this happens. As you get older, you start to watch women controlling whole family structures and causing great grief and pain within those structures. Talking about children, grandchildren, the works, women just coming to a place of just, just sin being expressed. Of course, they cover their sin with euphemisms, they cover their sin with reasonings and excuses, but still... This is how womanhood in its sinful manifestation comes to the fore. Manipulation and control of husbands and families. Your desire will be to your husband, not in a good way. And what will this bring to a marriage that was there designed to bring joy and peace and blessing? It will bring dissatisfaction. Satisfaction will be diminished. The relationship will be marred. And there will be grief and discontent. Sin, Mars. Men will become harsh. He will rule over you. Men will become harsh and overbearing and exploitive. And again, this is not toxic maleness. This is toxic sin. Any idea that men were ever, be, ever made by God to be exploitive or overbearing or harsh is false. That is never a definition of leadership not God's. And so when I read the feminist material that takes the sin of men but acts as if that's a definition of maleness and therefore we can't have male leadership, I'm like, no, no, we get rid of sin. We don't get rid of manhood, we get rid of sin. We don't get rid of womanhood, we get rid of sin. And then what's left is good. Jesus came to redeem us from sin in its expressions and in its consequences. And so, ladies, here's what you need to do. You need to analyze how sin undermines you as a woman and put it to death. See, men can't do that because men aren't women. 
So you need to say, you know, gosh, I'm a woman. I know what it is. I'm trying to say, you know, I'm trying to say this is an expression of woman. And no, it's not. It's an expression of sin. And you just need to put it to death. Success as a redeemed woman is to embrace and cultivate your womanhood in every dimension. And it means putting to death those things that diminish it and tarnish it. You'll be the better for it. You'll put a bigger smile on God's face. Another challenge to womanhood and motherhood is Satan. Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more crafty than the beast, any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, who does he go after? The woman. We have all read this, we all know this, but we forget this when we get into the daily warfare with Satan. Satan, as he whispers into the ears of women, he still uses the same strategy. He comes to the women every day where you are, in your motherhood, in your womanhood, and he starts whispering that this idea of womanhood is demeaning. Right? It's demeaning to be these things. Satan is going to come and demean your womanhood to you and to others, but to you. You're the first one he goes after. Then he goes after your husband. Then he goes after your children. Then he goes after everybody else, the world at large. He goes after all of the social institutions of the world to demean womanhood. That is his strategy. It started in the Garden of Eden. It was successful then. On the surface, it's successful now. And And Satan will come and continually take advantage of your womanhood. You were made to be a woman to do what? To be part of your husband's life that you together as a unit serve the Lord. You bring your contribution, he brings his. And you have great characteristics that enable you to for your contribution to make. It enables you to do that. But the characteristics that enable you to be a great contributor to this relationship from your side of womanhood make you unable to do the other side. Men cannot be women. And women cannot be men. And so Satan's going to come after you and your womanhood, and one of the things that's peculiar to womanhood, and I remember this, we were, I was talking to Gwen and, and just asking her, this is years ago, I was saying, gosh, what's the, what are the things that are the biggest challenge to, to your womanhood? And she said, thought, and she thought, she thought, discontent's probably at the top of the list. Then we went over to Chris and Paige's for dinner one night, and I said, hey, Paige, what do you think it is? And she thought, and she thought, and she thought, ah, it's discontent. That seems to rise to the pop, top, being discontent. I don't know why it is. I'm a man. I don't get discontent. But women do, and men don't understand it. So men try to fix it with men's solutions. It's not going to work, guys. It doesn't work. That, that metric wrench doesn't work on the English system. It just doesn't. And Satan's going to continually come and take advantage of your womanhood, and the primary thing he's trying to get at is to stir you up to discontent. My husband's not satisfying enough. I'm not this, not mean romance novels. What do they do to women? Men look at pornography. Women do what? They read the romance novels. Of course, they're getting steamier and steamier as the world rolls on, but, but women are made discontent with the romantic relationship with their husband because they read romance novels that are not real, just like men involve engage in pornography, and then they're discontent with their relationship with their wife sexually because that's a fantasy, it's not real. 
And they start comparing the real woman with the fantasy. And the women do the same thing with the romance novels. Discontent. And Satan will sow discontent in your life anytime he can. Watch for that. That's his biggest and most successful tactic. Demean you to yourself and others, your womanhood, and make you discontent. And the third thing that challenges to manhood or to womanhood, motherhood, is distortions of the world. The serpent was more crafty, and he comes to the woman and says, Indeed, has God said, questioning the design of God, questioning the purpose of God, questioning the valuations of God. Satan has gone after womanhood from the beginning, and he still uses the same strategy. Satan in our current world is just working overtime and it seems almost totally successful in socially deconstructing God's version of womanhood and replacing it with a godless humanistic version. The world is upon us. It just seems like it's impregnable, impregnable in their fortress they've built to destroy Christian womanhood. And one of the words they use, and this was used for a while, and I'm like, what does this word mean? I never even heard it before. <clears throat> misogyny. What is misogyny? It is a dislike of, a contempt for, or an ingrained prejudice against women. Or womanhood. Misogyny. So what, if you want to, you know... Say that a politician's a bad person or you want to cancel somebody, what do you call them? There's like a whole litany of words, right? You're a racist, you're a misogynist. What are some of the other words? I even forget, I've heard them so often, I just don't even listen to them anymore. The misogyny, that's always at the top of the list. You don't like women, all right? Well, this was an interesting article I encountered yesterday. And I kind of debated whether to do it or not. And I don't have the woman's name who wrote this book. I ordered the book, so I'll have her name. I was almost going to recommend it uh, to Michelle. Say, hey, this might be a good book. I don't know, uh, but it might be a good book for the women to read. And it was an interview with this woman who had written, has written this book, and there are some things I clearly disagreed with, so I'm not recommending the book that, oh, it's, it's the clear biblical presentation. She's off on women in ministry, things like that. But the woman is really a clear thinker and she's, you know, made it her job and her task to be in touch with all the stuff going on. And I don't, so I'm like, okay, I can go to this woman who's a good thinker and get her perspective on some of the stuff that's happening in the world of feminism. And maybe this isn't new for y'all, but this was kind of a, just a new angle, not a new content, but a new angle on how to define it. And so here are just some quotes from her. Feminism of which apparently there are three waves of feminism right now. Maybe a fourth is coming. Feminism is rife with a kind of stealth misogyny. Misogyny literally means hatred of women, and in its overt form often manifests as men abusing or demeaning women. But stealth misogyny is the hatred or devaluing of what's uniquely female or feminine. And ironically, It's the hallmark of feminism. That's an amazing quote to me. An amazing way of capturing. I used to say it all the time. That, you know, the the message out there in our day is if you want to be a good woman, you got to be a good man. Well, here's someone who is immersed in all that stuff and says, yep, that's what they're saying. In order to be a good woman, 
You have to deny your femininity and be a good man. She goes on, Betty Frieden, I don't know who some of these people are, who launched second wave feminism saw femininity as a vice, not a virtue. Writing that it made, quote, women a target and a victim of of the sexual cell. She also harbored a shockingly low view of motherhood, comparing those who dream of being housewives to the, quote, millions who walk to their own death in the concentration camps. This is feminism. This, this is a raw statement, but this is absorbed into the social order, and it's why, ladies, you are always feeling this sense that I'm being demeaned because I just want to be what God made me, a wife and a mom, and understand that that is the greatest contribution a person can make in the world. Businesses, I mean, Bill Gates, so he's a billionaire, so what? Moms raise kids into wholesome adults. That's, that's something to do. She goes again in another answer. Sadly, feminism tried to solve overt misogyny by embracing stealth misogyny, by dying to all that's feminine and becoming, as Gloria Steinem declared, the men we wanted to marry. But God didn't make women to be men, and becoming like them requires us to die to something essential within ourselves. Certainly, first-wave feminists achieved important gains for women, like the right to vote and to own property and to pursue higher education. But those early feminists, unlike their current successors, didn't win these gains at the expense of womanhood or the unborn. No doubt second-wave feminism, that was first-wave feminism, no doubt second-wave feminism helped achieve gains like greater parity and pay and more job opportunities for women. But considering the movement's almost fanatical promotion of abortion and its devaluation of motherhood, looking for gains is like trying to find a silver lining in the eugenics movement. Similarly, when I consider how third-wave feminism has encouraged women to prostitute themselves in the hookup culture, I'm sickened by the devastation the movement has caused. In another place, she says, on the other hand, the feminist vision denies the good and beautiful differences between men and women and requires women to deny what's uniquely feminine about them. Feminist Christians claim that men and women are functional equivalents and say that our roles are completely interchangeable. To fit this mold, women often die to essential parts of themselves like their maternal instinct or intuitive and emotional nature. So I'm anxious to get that book, do some reading in it. So back to Psalm 113, just to sort of wrap it up. God humbles himself to what? To behold things that are in the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust, the needy from the ash heap, so they can sit with princes, the princes of his people, and he makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. This is God's core design and blessing. Do not be moved from it. Do not let Satan demean it to you or to others. Embrace and rejoice in your womanhood and motherhood because this is well-pleasing to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your word is clear. And we thank you that in order for us to have your attention, we don't have to be important in the world. We don't have to be accomplished. We just have to be in your image. We just have to be good men and good women, focusing on character, focusing on being centered in you, 
and focusing on the roles you've given us that are a blessing and that are amazing. And so, Lord, just pray that, uh, just pray for all the, the Christian women around the world and the Christian women here who have to daily hear the, the, the dragon breath of Satan that womanhood is demeaning, that motherhood is demeaning, that you won't find self-fulfillment in those things. Lord, give them just clarity from your word and clarity by your Holy Spirit that they can be fully women and be fully satisfied and be fully fulfilled and be fully blessed by you, that that is your design, that that is your purpose. Don't let Satan or the world or even our own rationalizations move us from this. Lord, let the men here rejoice in their manhood and be the best men they can be. And may the women be the best women and mothers they can be so that we can glorify you and be just incredible witnesses to this world. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.